Good afternoon, everybody, and thank you for joining us for our Chess Journal Club of the month of September. Today, we have um, our authors from the New Lung Cancer Screening Guideline that was published in Chess this month. I am Alice Gallo. I'm an intensivist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I'm one of the social media editors for Chess. I'm joined today by my colleague, Venetia Arelli. Hello, everyone. How are you? Dr. Mazone, could you introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Peter Mazone. I'm a pulmonologist. I uh, work at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I run our lung cancer screening program, uh, and, and I have uh, an interest in uh, early detection of lung cancer uh, research as well. Um, happy to be here. Thanks for joining. Thank you for being with us today. Dr. Silvestri, would you mind introducing yourself? Hey, I'm Gerard Silvestri. I'm a pulmonologist at the Medical University of South Carolina at Charleston. I'm associate director of our uh, Hollings Cancer Center for our early detection and biomarker research, and I'm also happy to be here. Thank you for being here. Dr. Gonzalez, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, Anne Gonzalez. I'm an interventional pulmonologist based at McGill University in uh, Montreal, Canada. Thank you so much for being here. We are going to go ahead and get started. We are very thankful that you're all here with us today. Please make sure to send your questions in the chat box, question and answer box. Dr. Arelli is gonna be checking and sharing with us the questions you have. So first question I have for the panelists is, um, I, would, I was hoping that they could share with us how they chose all the to include all the studies that they included and how they went about to update the 2018 guidelines to now 2021 guidelines and what were the major changes that they found uh, yeah thanks for the question i'll start uh it if you haven't participated in guideline development before it really is quite a process and, and an education on on what what it takes to uh, make sure that your recommendations are truly evidence-driven. So uh, this guideline was an update from 2018. And the starting point is typically to formulate some questions that you want to answer through your literature searches. Uh, this time we called them key questions. They're called PICO questions sometimes where there's you know, patients, interventions, comparators, and outcomes. And, and you, you do that because that's what you want to cover. And then it also helps to frame the literature search that follows. So in 2018, there was a literature search around all of our key questions or PICO questions. And then we filtered those down. This is a, was a, a very different process in that the lung cancer screening guidelines were one of two chest guidelines that were chosen to be living guidelines. Meaning every three months, we repeated the literature search from the 2018 publication. Gerard and myself would look at those and see if they were relevant, the, the, the articles that came up in the literature search relevant to one of the key questions and to decide, would they likely make a big enough impact to change any of our recommendations? At which point we would want to update those guidelines. So this was every three months, two of us looking at it. And then really what, what pushed us to update was we, we knew that the Nelson trial, one of the big lung cancer screening controlled trials was gonna be reported. So we were prepared that when that um, trial was reported, we'd be ready to uh, take another look and update the guidelines. From there, we have a study methodologist who helps abstract data from all of the new articles who helps to do the meta-analyses for the key questions that have enough literature to do a meta-analysis for. We have a panel of uh, experts with broad expertise from surgeons to implementation scientists, uh, to pulmonologists, uh, chest radiologists involved. Um, and we all reviewed some of that literature, came together, crafted the new recommendations, voted on them formally. We had to meet predefined thresholds for yes votes in, in order for those uh, recommendations to be accepted and then crafted the document. Uh, it then goes through review at the guideline oversight committee. It goes through review uh, with the journal. Um, and so quite a process, um, but, uh, but well worth it, I think. Uh, 
Gerard, did you want to add anything to the process before we go to no, the- No, I think you've covered that completely, Peter. Yeah, and the process is the most boring part too, right? So we should move on. The next question really was most important, I think, um, was what really changed from 2018 uh, to 2021's guidelines? Uh, there was new literature, particularly uh, supporting lung cancer screening. The Nelson screening trial was the second after the National Lung Screening Trial that was powered to detect a mortality benefit. And nobody was quite sure if it was going to. It enrolled slightly lower risk individuals, the National Lung Screening Trial, but it did. And actually that benefit was even, was even greater than in the National Lung Screening Trial. So that new bit of evidence allowed us to strengthen recommendations and to look and see if we could broaden eligibility criteria. In addition, there was three more years of practice, right? Three more years of implementing high quality lung cancer screening for us to consider when deciding on the balance of benefits and harms. I'm not sure, Alice, if you have the first few guideline recommendations, maybe we could put those up and I'll just highlight a couple of the differences uh, there and then uh, ask Gerard to comment. So in, we broke up the recommendations into who you should screen and then how to perform high quality screening as a program. So the first recommendation is worded the same as last time, screen people age 55 to 77, 30 pack years or more that, that they had smoked in their lifetime and they've smoked within the last 15 years. With the additional evidence to support screening, that was moved up to a strong recommendation from a weak recommendation that last time and uh, moderate quality evidence. The Nelson trial screened down to age 50 and a few other studies have as well. And our meta-analysis suggested there was benefit uh, more than harm uh, going down to age 50. The uh, Nelson trial also had a lower pack year threshold for enrollment. So the evidence suggested that we could recommend screening uh, to a broader group. So the second guideline or our recommendation statement is entirely new age 50 to 80, smoke 20 pack years, and you've smoked within the last 15 years. This had less evidence to support it, so it's a weak recommendation, but still uh, what we're recommending. That first recommendation matches what Medicare currently approves as policy, and they're re-looking at their policy. They'll have uh, new guidance out probably in February or March of next year. And that second guide uh, recommendation is uh, in keeping with what the United States Preventative Services Task Force has recommended uh, for eligibility for lung cancer screening. The third recommendation statement here, uh, some may say it's new as well. I think it's more a lesson in the importance of choosing words and, and language than anything else. Last time we made uh, our recommendation said that we wouldn't routinely screen people who have a high enough risk based on a risk calculator. And we meant by that is there are uh, variables in those risk calculators that uh, like age and smoking and history of a prior cancer and COPD that end up identifying a population at higher risk for competing mortality. And therefore they, we might identify a lot of people who shouldn't be screened because they're not well enough to be uh, to be screened. And so we worded it that way. And then in our remarks, we said, but we recognize there's some high risk people who are well enough and you should consider screening them. And I think the remarks sometimes get lost. This time with a little more evidence, a few more risk calculators looked at in different ways, we chose to kind of flip the language. And here we've said, uh, if you don't meet those first two criteria, but you're projected to have high net benefit from lung cancer screening based on the results of clinical risk prediction calculators combined with life expectancy estimates or based on a life year gained calculator, then we suggest annual screening, weak recommendation. So it's not really much more open than the old one was, but it's framed frame differently, phrased differently where, where that um, I, I think will draw attention as being different. 
Notably, there is no policy. This is our recommendation. So USPSTF doesn't recommend the use of calculators. Medicare, I'm not sure what they'll decide, but I'd be a little surprised if they do recommend calculators. So this comes with remarks that include thresholds on the calculators for you to consider as high enough risk, but it also comes with a remark saying, hey, insurance may not cover this person's screen um, because it, it, this is our recommendation, not some broader policy. Um, so I'll, I'll leave those comments at that. Open up, Gerard, was there anything else? Um, so so I would just add, yeah, that was wonderful, Peter. I would just add a couple of things. One is the Nelson trial in Europe. One of the reasons that people were a little bit hesitant was the only trial ever um, powered to answer the question was national on screen trial. So getting this second trial really did increase our uh, recommendation. Um, the other thing about the Nelson trial is their control group was no screening at all, no screening as opposed to um, NLST, which had a chest X-ray. The third difference in those trials, which is worth mentioning uh, because it's come up, especially to me in a few questions, which is, hey, the Nelson trial, um, which was only 13,000 patients compared to the 53,000 in NLST, um, really um, uh, didn't see an overall mortality benefit. They saw a lung cancer reduction in mortality, but not overall. And I think the reason for that is that it just wasn't powered enough to show that difference. The last thing I'll say um, is that, um, and these were, um, not, this is not sort of definite yet, if you will, um, but in both the NLST and particularly in Nelson, women did much better than men. Now, 85% of the Nelson trial was done in uh, men and 15% in women. And so when the article came out in the England Journal, they actually had them analyzed separately, but man, they were, in both studies, uh, women seem to do a lot uh, better than men. We don't exactly have an answer for that right now, but it's something to consider when you're talking to uh, patients of, by gender about their screening. So that's, I think, would I'd just leave those few extra comments in there. Dr. Sebastian, would you mind clarifying for me if women did better in terms of mortality from cancer or yes. they did better yes. being screened? Better from a mortality benefit. I don't have the number right in front of me, but um, it did better from a, a lung cancer mortality reduction. In NLST, it didn't, wasn't statistically significantly better, but there was a pretty good trend. Um, and uh, and in, in the uh, Nelson trial, it was a fairly sizable difference, but they were, they were looked at separately. You, you had, I think, a slide that um, summarizes the various risk ratios. Yes, this one here. And you see at the bottom there, uh, male and female, this is across all studies. So benefit to both, for sure. The risk reduction was you know, 0.88 in men and 0.69 in women. So you see a, a stronger yeah. signal for, for benefit there. I, I just wanted to mention as well, because it's, it's been an issue that in the third recommendation was meant to, um, to, to support this concern, that the standard age and smoking history-based criteria uh, have, it's been suggested, it's been shown that they can selectively disadvantage certain groups, uh, particularly minority groups, and, and the, um, the risk calculators may help to equalize opportunities to be screened as well. So that was another reason that we chose to um, you know, state this in the affirmative rather the other way around. Peter, I totally agree with that. I, I would add that uh, if you look at the JAMA articles around um, the, University, the United States Preventive Services Task Force, they did uh, three articles appear. One is the actual article itself that makes the recommendations. The second is a modeling study. And in that modeling study, they take on a few of these things, particularly race, um, and then editorial, um, and the editorial talks about uh, disparities and, and race. And what I would tell you is, if you put the same, I've done this, put into the calculators and you put an African-American um, with just a bit less smoking history, 20 pack years, as opposed to 30, but same age, same everything else as a white uh, uh, person, you'll see that the African-American wouldn't have uh, been able to be screened in the old criteria um, but actually had a higher risk of developing cancer uh, than the 
than the uh, uh, white uh, white person in that. So I, I do think that uh, using risk-based uh, screening sometimes can really uncover patients who would not normally be eligible that would then become eligible. And so again, one of the reasons uh, they moved USPSTF down to 50 and 20 pack years is that African-Americans develop a lung cancer at a younger age with a less smoking history than their white counterparts. Thank you so much. This was excellent. Dr. Gonzalez, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I guess my, my question to both uh, Dr. Mazzone and Dr. Silvestri would be, how, how do you implement that third recommendation in, into clinical practice, right? With, with, which model you would use or, or how do you go about, I guess, trying to use these calculators that, 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 are, that are better at predicting, especially uh, in, in women, in, in African-Americans, but, but then perhaps are not, those individuals may not be covered for lung cancer screening. How do you reconcile that? I I think it's a great question and it's um, not easily answered. It, it comes back to a bit about what is, what's the purpose of a guideline like this with these recommendations. And uh, unfortunately, we don't make policy. We can't make insurers cover things that we suggest. You know, that tends to go to the USPSTF and CMS. So we hope by drawing this out and making a recommendation that it helps to move those needles over time so that you can, um, you can offer screening and be assured that it's going to be covered for individuals. But that's not where we are now. At your individual program level, um, you know, some programs are very, very strict. Uh, if you screen outside of current guidelines and policy, uh, you're not going to get paid, and, and there's always been a, kind of a question or fear of being punished. Um, so I think you have to understand the local insurance space and what your institution is willing to do and, and what you're not. The second part of it, and, and I think maybe some of the reason why policy is stuck to age and smoking history, is the risk calculators aren't simple to use. You know, it's already difficult to get people into screening programs. And now you're asking for a few more variables to be entered into a calculator and to have a threshold. So you have to design and build your program in a way that allows those calculators to, to be used. Um, you know, we calculate the risk in, during every shared decision-making visit in our program. Uh, we have a centralized program and a nurse practitioner seeing these patients and, and entering that in. If we had to rely on the primary care provider to do that calculation to refer to our program, it would be very unlikely to happen, no matter how much support we provide within our electronic health record or otherwise. So I think it's on us as a program to reach those patients. We're trying to encourage you know, primary care to refer to our program and we can help make those decisions and, and do other types of, you know, uh, of lung health care. All of the calculators are, are, that we suggest, they have online tools. So it's, you know, it is doable for sure. Um, and, uh, and we provide in the remarks, I don't think they're included in the slides here, thresholds for risk of developing lung cancer on each of the validated calculators that you would consider to be um, thresholds of, as it says here, high net benefit. So we're not trying to identify those borderline cases here where, you know, shared decision-making may suggest it's not the best thing to do for that patient. These are people who clearly have more benefit than harm. The, the other challenge in implementing, if you use a pure risk prediction calculator and not the life year gain calculator, you also have to estimate life expectancy and life expectancy in the remarks um, from some of the experts who are part of our panel is 10 years. Some studies have suggested five, others 10, but 10 years is what they're saying. And that's not an easy estimate to make either. So there are challenges to implementing this, but we do think it's the most uh, just and equitable way to, uh, de to deliver screening at this time. Gerard, what do you think? Yeah, I, I would just add uh, that our program also uh, is a centralized program, and we 
uh, we do in, in, we use the Tamamagi model and we individualize risk for every patient. And I will say that um, for patients who come in that you know uh, don't meet the current criteria of 55 to 77, the current uh, CMS criteria, but have a risk that's above what the Tamamagi model says is reasonable. Um, and some of ours are way above that. Um, we've been offering them screening. Um, we offer them a, a reasonably priced CT if they can't get um, if they can't get coverage. We tell them they may not be able to be covered, but they're at a higher risk than the general population for developing cancer over the next six years. And one other thing, I mean, I, I, insurance questions have come up so much in these discussions. But one other thing I would say is that. Um, once a person has an abnormal scan, then they go right into their regular insurance. So for the most part, it's that first scan that might not be covered, but if they have um, an abnormality along rats three, four, um, they would get covered after that. We like the idea of individualizing risk because it also gets to the shared decision-making. If someone's closing in on 77, they have a, some other um, they've quit smoking 14 years ago, they have some other health problems and their risk is really below um, the NLST uh, threshold or the Tamamagi threshold. We, we say to them, you, you, this might not be a benefit. So it really becomes very personal for that patient at that point. So we like, we like the models. Um, I would agree with Peter, you're not gonna be able to get uh, a primary care provider who has a 15 or 30 minute office visit who's dealing with diabetes and back pain and other issues to uh, um, be, be able to sit down with a calculator with those patients. Phoenicia, we have a comment from our audience. Do you want to share that? Absolutely. And I also want to say for any for everyone who's uh, able to be part of the Journal Club today, please pass on all questions. At any point, I'll be able to interrupt and ask a question. But we have a great one from William Grant. And he's saying, according to the American Lung Association, Massachusetts has the highest rate of LDCT screenings of eligible citizens in their state, but it's only 18%. On average across the United States, only 5% of eligible patients for LDCT are actually screened. What does the panel think we can do to increase screening rates? While broadening the age and criteria for screening is great, it seems that the main challenge is getting screening to be done in the first place. I think that's actually an excellent question. So Dr. Zodar, Supervisor Valtteri, what do you guys think? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's two main, two main problems. And I think that the, um, Entry into screening, though, uh, is definitely a problem. I think some of the numbers are, are a little overstated. The the five percent number, you know, comes from data collected in 2015, right when Medicare actually started approving lung cancer screening. Um, and and we've seen numbers go up from then, and accredited centers go up uh, a whole lot from them. Then those are also kind of questionnaires to patients who may have got scanned for different reasons and, and they're answering and not quite sure if it was screening or not. So uh, it's helpful to know that data, but I'm not sure it's all that accurate. Um, Dr. Silvestri has uh, a paper uh, soon to come, come out that shows by 2019, the American College of Radiology's um, uh, registry had 1.2 million people screened out of 8 million eligible. So you can see the percentages are higher than, than suggested, though still far poorer than we would like. So the second challenge and identified in multiple ways, including in that study, is getting those who are screened to come back. In any one year, we may only screen 5% of those who are eligible, though over time, the percentage who are screened is much higher. So adherence is, uh, is, has become more clearly a, a major issue in performing high quality screening. What should we do here? I think it's education of your community, of your providers. It's making things as easy as possible. Um, our program uh, overnight had a fourfold increase in referrals when we had a best practice advisory go live in an electronic health record. It, it just can't be on the primary care provider to remember it, it you know, it, it 
has to be somehow um, somehow right in front of them to uh, allow them to uh, identify everybody. We're taking additional steps now in scanning smoking histories in our record and sending messages through our MyChart communication system with patients, trying to allow them to self-schedule. Um, it's how can we get this to be as easy as possible? We started screening on main campus and now we're at 11 sites around our health system, bringing it closer to the patients. Um, we, uh, you know, this has been an up and down issue, but some patients can't come in for their shared decision-making visit. Can you do it through telehealth? You know, you could during COVID, but those rules are, are getting changed again. So how can we make it as easy as possible, but yet still maintain uh, all of the quality of the program that you, you want? And I think there's a lot of tactics um, uh, that, that, that we can do to implement things. Gerard? Yeah, it's fantastic, Peter. I think I'm going to add a couple more issues. Um, so one of the things in, in looking at those first million screens um, is that um, it looks like more current smokers are being screened than former smokers. And boy, that's not what the National Lung Screening Trial showed. And so one of the things that's different, there are a few things that are different about lung cancer screening that make it challenging. The first thing is, if you look at colorectal screening or breast screening, it's basically just all citizens of the United States of a certain age, maybe plus or minus a family history, but you know, you're going to get your screening, you know, age 50 for colorectal, unless now it's actually recommended down to 45, unless you have a strong family history. It's easy to remember that it's everybody. For lung cancer screening, um, it, it's making sure you, ha you have to have this pack year history and this age history, and then a quit history. How long ago did they quit? And so I'm wondering about why former smokers aren't getting screened. And it might just be that um, internists, you know, if, they're, if the person's not smoked in 10 years, it might be sort of out of sight, out of mind. You know, they just, well, you know, they quit smoking a long time ago. And, you know, so, so I think identifying the at-risk population is difficult. There have been multiple papers that show that the electronic medical record is highly inaccurate at identifying pack years. And so, so that's one challenge. There's another sort of hidden, two other challenges I'd put to you. There's one hidden challenge, which is smokers reside in a portion of the population that may not have as much access to screening as as non-smokers. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at smoke, the, the smoking rates in the United States are about 15% across the board. If you look at people with less than a high school degree, that's 25 to 30%. If you look at people who make less than $35,000 a year, it's also much higher. And so these people generally can't identify a primary care provider. They don't have health insurance sometimes, or they have Medicaid, which is not always covering screening for lung cancer. And so they reside in a portion of the population that doesn't generally have as good access to screening. Um, as, uh, as uh, for example, other screening services like colorectal or breast cancer screening. And finally, there's the stigma portion of this. Um, many, uh, many people feel like, many patients feel like they bought this on themselves. They don't want to talk about it. Um, and so we have to get around the stigma of screening for cancer. I think Peter's right, though. It has to be a full-out blitz if you're going to increase screening. Uh, everything from uh, a PSAs, to uh, you know, uh, talking to your internal medicine groups at your institution, um, any any way, shape, or form. I mean, look, like breast cancer screening has really increased in in the United States. They get you know three hundred pound football players to wear pink gloves on Sunday, right? Like it's an incredible thing that women have done to increase uh, breast cancer screening, and I applaud them. Unfortunately, what they should also understand is more women will die of lung cancer in the United States than breast cancer. Um, and that's true probably in Canada and as many other places. So probably need to start getting that message out as well. Dr. Gonzalez, do you have, do you have any, any other ideas to increase screening? Yeah, the perspective here is a bit different because the, the within a single payer system where it, certainly in my province in Quebec, cancer care Ontario has been ahead of the curve um, in Canada, but in, in Quebec uh, screening is still in its infancy with sort of a um, government run multi-site pilot project. We had a pilot project at my institution run by a colleague. And so what's happened in fact, with some of the delays in getting these 
um, more official programs off the ground has been ad hoc screening with GPs ordering scans. And, and that creates all kinds of problems um, uh, that are beyond the scope, I think, of the discussion, but like, you know, the wrong criteria, having studies that are not low dose, um, etc. Um, so yeah, the, the perspective is a bit different, but the, but the interest in there and, and things are, are certainly uh, getting off the ground um, up north. Um, let me just find my, the slide here. Dr. Mazzone, I was hoping that you could talk to us also about this finding uh, on the number of surgical procedures for benign disease um, that you found. Yeah, so the, the evidence that we were looking for when making recommendations included, uh, is there evidence of benefit and the counterbalance was what are the evidence of potential harms from lung cancer screening. You know, screening is unique to what we do. We often see someone with a symptom or feeling bad and, and we do tests to try and help make them feel better. Here in screening, these are folks who come with no symptoms. You know, they're feeling fine and now you're doing something that, that could harm them in some ways whether it's the screening test harming them themselves or our evaluation of the results. So in lung cancer screening, most of the harms come from finding lung nodules or uh, things in the lung that need further evaluation. And, uh, and so we stress throughout the guidelines in the implementation part of how important it is for programs to have high quality lung nodule management, to follow protocols and algorithms um, to have all of the proper personnel and tools available to help manage nodules. And this particular harm uh, question was, how often do people with screen-detected lung nodules uh, who end up having a surgery, how, how often does the surgery happen in somebody with a benign nodule? And uh, you see quite a bit of variability there, but the, the sum was about 22% of the time. I believe in the lung cancer screening registry, the ACR registry was even higher than that, 28 or 29% a year or two ago. So one in four surgeries is done for benign disease. Add to that, that sometimes surgery is done for cancer that may not need to come out. Uh, a ground glass nodule, an adenocarcinoma in situ that may or may not have hurt that person over time. Uh, there's a portion of surgeries for cancer that, that maybe didn't need to happen either. So this is a, a major consideration when you're implementing your screening program is how are you going to minimize surgery for benign disease without delaying the time it takes to take out an early stage lung cancer. Uh, and there's lots of strategies. I'm sure our own program, we have a uh, category four nodule tumor board. We meet weekly and review all the category four nodules from that week uh, with chest radiology, pulmonary, sometimes thoracic surgery involved. And we, um, we find we often end up downgrading the nodules from category four to lower um, categories. And we're able to have a very low percentage of our surgeries be for benign disease. But definitely something that can impact the balance of benefits and harms in every program should consider. Dr. Sylvester, you're mute. I'm sorry, Peter, what would you consider as low? What would be reasonable? Um, 5%. Yeah, I, I don't know that we know that number. No one's ever sort of stated that as a number that we should have as a goal. Um, I completely agree with you. Um, but, you know, a lot of places don't have a, a dedicated chest radiologist, for example. Um, and so one of the things that we've uh, tried to do is on, in our satellite hospitals, and we just uh, started a screening program in, in Lancaster, South Carolina, which is incredibly small, rural, 100-bed facility without even a pulmonologist, Peter. Um, and, and so we, uh, we bought the uh, APP down here. Uh, had them sit with our radiologists, our dedicated chest radiologists, all, and then we had a champion radiologist up there that agreed to format everything in lung rads. 
but any lung rats three and four does come, you know, get a virtual visit here for that exact reason. So one of the things I would recommend to our audience, if you're not in a place with um, the ability to, to, to have a, a lung rads tumor board, if you will, um, please try to um, get together with someone who does or who has uh, experience with this. I think one in five surgeries for benign disease is unacceptable. It's absolutely unacceptable. Um, you know, it's one thing to put through someone through the surgery and, and have them have a risk of dying perioperatively um, if they have cancer, right? Um, it's completely something else if someone's you know, goes through surgery uh, and, and has a terrible complication from surgery um, with benign disease. So I, I agree the goal should be less than 10% and perhaps less than 5%. And I think this is one metric that programs should keep uh, some of their own data on so that you can share that, um, you know, with each other to try to improve outcomes in your own program. I think the other, the other, um, the other number that was produced in a different figure was related to procedures for benign disease, not surgeries per se. And that was 35 to 40%, uh, you know, of all of the biopsies performed were performed on a benign nodule. So something else to, you know, work hard at minimizing, particularly in this population who are somewhat prone to complications from those biopsies. And I would add, just remember that these are the randomized trials largely done in academic centers with expertise. And, and so I, I think we really don't have a, a great handle on, uh, on community sites. Um, and so, so again, this is you know, maybe even an underestimate. So I think we do need to keep that data at your own institution um, and, and try to do everything you can. Uh, to avoid uh, biopsies and unnecessary surgeries. Um, and so, and again, we, you know, we don't hesitate at times to, to have a three month follow-up for our patients um, as opposed to going right into a biopsy just to see what happens to the nodule. One other thing, the Nelson trial used uh, volumetrics um, to help them decide benign from malignant and they recommend that as a way to follow up these nodules. Um, we are getting more and more experience with that at our institution and finding it very helpful. It's a little bit difficult to do, and you probably need a dedicated chest radiologist, but the software is getting better and better, um, and volume measurements might be more accurate than sort of just putting your cursor on and pulling it across to see if the nodule is growing or not. And it looks like we have another question from our audience. But before I get to the question, I just want to say as a community pulmonologist, I think having the guidelines come out again and having them um, change and modified will definitely put it back on people's radar to be able to talk about doing lung screening besides as pulmonologists, but as PCP. So this has been very welcome um, and very exciting information for those who are practicing the community. We have a question from Ionis who is asking, what do you suggest for lung, for non-smokers who may develop lung cancer? And I'm thinking he's asking, she's asking specifically about how the guidelines may affect that or not. Yeah, we, with our current understanding, a, a never smoker, someone who has never smoked cigarettes, um, won't, won't ever reach a high enough risk of developing lung cancer to be included in low-dose CT screening. Um, I think We've been fortunate, and uh, I say that carefully. You know, the, probably the only reason we found a mortality benefit is because we have such a dominant risk factor, um, unlike breast and colon. We couldn't CT scan and biopsy so many people, like everybody so who's over 50 or 55. We would definitely end up doing more harm than good to the population as a whole, even though we'd find more cancers and fewer people would, uh, would, uh, would face late stage cancer, we would just hurt too many people to help the smaller numbers that we find. So what, what might happen down the road, you know, the, there's a tremendous amount of work being done on biomarker development for lung cancer and pan-cancer early detection, uh, some very promising stuff um, to 
technologies have come a long way and, and it's now uh, uh, in the eye of funders and venture capital and they see this is a, a field that can help a lot of people but also uh, be profitable for, for uh, business investment. So I'm optimistic that some of these blood tests over time will allow us to broaden the pool of eligible individuals for lung cancer screening, but that's still a few years off or more. Yeah, I think there's also the, the part here where, you know, you do get some worried patients who come in who lost a parent and an uncle and an aunt, and even though they've never smoked, they are very concerned they want to be screened. And I think one thing I would ask our audience to do is to talk to them about uh, the potential downsides of screening, which include, you know, um, the, these things like surgery for benign disease and include things like biopsies um, that can lead to side effects such as pneumothorax and bleeding. So, I, you know, I, I try to reassure them that their risk is incredibly low. I actually put them into a model if we need to and discuss that, show them the risk there compared to what the risk of an average smoker who would re, re, uh, be in that. And we don't screen those patients. We tell them they're not eligible and we don't screen them. Now, it does turn out that, you know, some of them go across the street and find a, you know, a radiology unit and, you know, pay out of pocket and get screened. But I'm just not going to provide uh, that care. I, I try to do everything I can to be empathetic and, and listen and try to reassure, but we're not going to provide care that we don't think is necessary and that might cause more harm than good. So that's a conversation I think is worthy of having with a patient. And we have another question from our audience. Are there guidelines dedicated to specific occupational exposures? There are no guidelines specific to those exposures. Those exposures are included in a few of the lung cancer risk calculators. Um, they're often hard to quantify uh, or, or verify that a significant exposure has occurred. Um, so uh, unfortunately they don't in and of themselves raise somebody uh, to the level of uh, being able to be screened with current policy, but they can enter some of the uh, risk calculators um, and add to the risk there. Yeah, you know, the NCCN, the National Cancer Care Network had a, uh, a second sort of non-evidence-based recommendation that if someone was younger or may not have a, quite the smoking history, but had a quote exposure and they list things like asbestos in that, that you might wanna go ahead and screen them. Um, but we have not taken the tack of using that. Um, we would put some of those extra exposures into the, um, into the model, right? Into the model. And if it raised their threshold over the threshold of where screening is recommended, and it's in the model and, and we can justify that. I will say, and Peter, as editor-in-chief of Chests, um, I'm, I'm certain this article crossed his desk, but uh, the group from New York City looked at uh, screening in their uh, World Trade Center, um, uh, the, the folks from the World Trade Center. And one of the things they found, these guys were exposed to a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of uh, dust and other particles during the World Trade Center uh, uh, debacle. And, it did look like, and they, they were also smokers, but it did look like they had a fairly high risk of developing uh, lung cancer, higher than you would expect just based on their age and pack care history alone. Um, what to do with that data, I, I don't know. They were getting screened either way. Um, those, uh, those workers, health workers, or those workers, frontline uh, folks were getting screened either way through the fire department in the city of New York. I don't know what to make out of that. Dr. Gonzalez, do you have anything else to add? No, I, I, I just wonder with the time left, if, if you want to have a, tackle some of the key um, implementation messages from the guidelines, perhaps. Absolutely. I just want to add something to what Dr. Silvestri said in terms of the World Trade Center. We're also hearing not only lung cancer, right, but all other cancers, also a lot of multiple myeloma, also not related to their age. So it makes it very hard to add those type of exposures to, to a broader guideline that would cause a good, like a beneficial impact in the population, right? Yes, 
the answer is yes. Um, I, I, look, it, it, it came up before, how can we increase, um, how can we increase the proportion of the population that's being screened? And even if uh, Peter and I uh, are slightly on different sides on how many people are being screened, is it 5%? Let's say we double it to 10%. It's still not uh, nearly enough. Um, and so we can split hairs and go after these other smaller groups, but that's not really what's going to make big headway from a public policy standpoint, from a, a, a reduction in mortality uh, across the United States. Is we got we to really focus on getting the people who are eligible um, in, into programs. Um, I, I did see, and not in the chat box, but there's a couple of Q&A questions um, from Boutros. Can I, can I take those on? Yes, if I could just read them to everyone, because I thought they were actually excellent questions. And the question was, what is the acceptable timeline between a positive setting and a definitive treatment from looking at findings? And then I also thought the next question was excellent. Who is best suited to champion the program, a pulmonologist, or radiologist, or a thoracic surgeon? So please. So, so I, I, I'll answer the second one first. Of course it's a pulmonologist. Come on, guys. <laughs> this is what we do. No, I, Look, I, I, uh, I do think uh, pulmonologists are really well suited to, to running one of these programs. Why? Um, first of all, they, they can really assess, even without, uh, without, a, uh, without a risk model, they can really assess whether their patients would benefit from screening. We see these patients with COPD um, on oxygen that may not benefit from screening. Second is we're also there to evaluate and manage solitary pulmonary nodules. So um, we're good at that and we should not shy away from that. And, and, the, and radiologists aren't you know, generally used to having a shared decision-making conversation. Um, and, and thoracic surgeons in general um, have a bit of a perverse incentive to run a screening program where they might, you know, want to operate more than is, than is possibly necessary. So, you know, uh, yes, I'm biased, but I do think a pulmonologist is an excellent pro person to run that program. By the way, an advanced practice provider can do such a terrific job with the program. And we have one um, who, you know, is under the auspices of uh, two or three pulmonologists here. Um, then the acceptable timeline is, look, a positive study, it depends a little bit on their lung rads designation. If their lung rads three, um, it's six months to follow up CT. Um, if, if we have definitive malignant findings, those patients ought to be managed quite quickly. And, and so for our lung rads fours, we are getting them in for either a biopsy or PET scan or even surgical resection if if uh, it's a, a nodule of high enough pretest probability to be cancer. So we want those patients taken care of quickly. The whole point of screening is to find these uh, patients early um, so you can resect them when they don't advance. So what's, what's acceptable? I, I don't know. We, we have a, a, a rule in my clinic that a new uh, potential lung cancer has to be seen uh, and have a plan within 10 working days. We don't always meet that, but that's our goal. It's, they come in, we get them an appointment within 10 working days and their workup shouldn't take much more than 10 working days after that to, the, to they either get biopsy or receive definitive treatment. Um, it's a goal. It doesn't happen every time, but if you don't have goals for your program, it's not going to be the best run program. Yeah, I think just to, to add to both those answers, the, the, the first who should run it, it and you know, I, I don't disagree, pulmonary is in a great place, but you really have to be interested and passionate about it. It's, it's a lot of effort and a, a lot of collaboration that's necessary. And whoever runs it needs the other groups to be part of it for it to run well, too. Uh, we wouldn't have a good program without our chest radiologists' um, interest and involvement, for sure, and, and having all the other folks to manage nodules. The other question's a tough one. We, we had some quality indicators developed and, and asked that question, and, and we had answers sort of all over the place. Um, and one of the challenges is it's not often a metric that's kept. Time to treat is usually from the diagnosis of cancer to treatment. And there are some studies showing, you know, 30 days, this and that but rarely do they include time from first noticed to time to diagnose. And if that ends up being long, long time, that could impact things just as much as the, getting someone in for treatment really quick. So 
I mean, I think um, it's something that you should track and aim to have as low as it can possibly be, but the best numbers hard to really define. Yeah, and just to add, I was being a little facetious. I agree with Peter. If you are really passionate about this and really take the time to build a program, it really doesn't matter. Good leaders are good leaders, no matter what their subspecialty is. Um, and so I, I want to make it clear. And we are so multidisciplinary here that we couldn't do it without. Um, and I will tell you that we provide feedback to our chest radiology group, uh, which we've now kind of honed down to less people who provide more standardized lung rads, but we'll actually have them go back and amend reports after tumor board uh, to, to reflect what the true lung rads is because that affects patient care as well. So, you know, being responsible and accountable to each other is very important, but having a, a team with good thoracic surgery support, uh, good uh, radiology support, uh, a great nurse navigator, they're all important. I think the metrics too are, are really quite nuanced. I mean, time to treat a ground glass nodule that we know is an adenocarcinoma in situ probably doesn't matter, right? And, and so if, if someone's penalized because that took two years till it was diagnosed and treated, you know, that would be wrong. So it, it, we just have to be careful in how we measure these things and, and apply them in practice. And I just have two more questions from the audience with being mindful of the time, but they're excellent questions. So I wanna make sure we get them out there. One is from William, as actually directed Dr. Mazzone, but I'm sure Dr. Silvestri and Dr. Gonzalez can speak on this also. You mentioned earlier on the webcast that CMS is reevaluating coverage for LDCT eligibility in February or March of next year. Can you give any more details about that? And obviously this is based on the challenges they have with getting insurance coverage for the LDCT. Yeah, I, I don't have any insight into where they're going with it. I think we're hopeful or optimistic that they're going to um, change to match what the USPSTF has recommended. So lower the age criteria, currently 55 in CMS to 50 and the pack years from 30 to 20. I don't anticipate that they'll embrace risk calculators, but uh, maybe I'll be wrong there. Um, they did have a, a period of public comment I, I, or yeah, a period of public comment already, then they'll probably release draft recommendations and have another period of public comment. So you can be on the lookout for those. Some in the community uh, wonder what they're gonna do with some of the other mandates, data collection, um, shared decision-making. Uh, the, the lung cancer screening community is kind of on both sides there. Some think shared decision-making may uh, provide a barrier to uptake of screening and others feel it's very important. I think uh, both Gerard and myself have strongly favored in continuing the mandate for shared decision-making. And that is one of our recommendations. Um, but I don't have more insight as to what they'll decide, only the time frame in which they're gonna make that decision. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that they'll go against the USPSTF. Um, I, I don't, Peter and I both have been at different times in touch with the people at CMS. They're going to be very deliberate about their decision. I'm not completely optimistic that we'll know by, uh, you know, February or March, but we may. Uh, the one other thing I'll tell you is once uh, the USPSTF makes that recommendation and once CMS covers it, the other insurers through the Affordable Care Act basically have to cover it. So I think what you'll see is once that happens, it, it, it will go down, uh, go down very quickly to the insurers. What, what I would tell you also is we, we've seen some insurance uh, companies willing to cover already down to the 50 based on the USPSTF's re recommendation. So you may want to at least check with your local providers. And most of our local providers have already accepted those new eligibility criteria, which was great. So it does help to know what, what's there in your community. And real quick, before we wrap up, and I thought this is another excellent question. Again, this goes to Dr. Gonzalez, like Ms. Dr. Silvestri, anyone. As we know, smoking cessation should be part prior to referral to LCS. Are we seeing that done? And if so, to what extent? They're curious about LCS and smoking cessation rates, and if we're seeing that that's enrolling more patients. 
Yeah, you know, I mean, the practical answer for your own program, I think it it's absolutely mandatory to have a smoking cessation connection, um, whether you train your providers to provide high quality smoking cessation guidance or you're connected to other programs in the community. Um, absolutely, uh, you shouldn't be screening without having that as part of your program. In our guideline, what was just put up there, there have been some studies that looked at the impact of screening on smoking cessation, and it tends to be favorable, though not dramatically so, and the smoking cessation rates are still far lower than you would like to see. Yeah, I, I'd add a couple things. We we had our APPs trained in, so at first we were just referring them to a smoking counselor, smoking cessation program in, the, in our university. Uh, but we found that it became very clunky and inconvenient. So we sent our APP to be trained and certified in smoking cessation counseling. So they can do the shared decision-making, they can do the follow-up of the nodules and they do smoking cessation on the ground. And, and we found that very helpful. Um, I would add two other things. One is there are eight uh, RO1 level National Cancer Institute trials called the SCALE trials at eight institutions. Ours is, happens to be one of them looking at how to best incorporate uh, smoking cessation into the screening visit. And so we should be getting data soon on those. They're about two to three years into those, maybe even a little bit more. Um, the second thing I would say is, listen, like these are your recalcitrant smokers. Think about it. Um, when you look at smoking cessation trials of varenicline or other things, you know, they're taking all comers, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, people who are binge smoke on the weekend. We're talking about people who largely have smoked a pack a day for 35 to 50 years. These are people that are intensely hooked on cigarettes. And we have a manuscript that's uh, being submitted uh, right now where we looked at NLST and, and the detailed smoking information. And it looks like, um, it, you know, some of these high, about a third of them uh, need a cigarette within 15 minutes of waking up in the morning, about a third of them, right? And so we also found in that study that if they were treated with double uh, therapy, nicotine replacement plus varenicline, uh, actually it was Wellbutrin in that, in that trial, um, they had a, a much higher chance of quitting. And yet in the national lung screening trial of the people uh, that uh, were in that trial um, that were eligible, only 25% uh, received any kind of nicotine replacement. Think about that. Current smokers, 25%. That means 75%. Now, maybe they just said they didn't want it, but if you look at the surveys of those people, 75% never got any kind of nicotine replacement. We're dealing with a highly addicted group, and we have to, I think, come out of the gate swinging um, if we're going to get those folks to quit. Thank you so much. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. This has been a great, great, great discussion. I was hoping that we could um, get each of you to give us one take-home point from the new guidelines that you want people to stick with. And again, on behalf of Chess, thank you so much for coming in and for all of those who called in from home. So how about we start with Dr. Gonzalez, then Dr. Silvestri, and then Dr. Mazone. I think for me, the, the, the main message, of course, beyond the importance of this living guideline and to know that is, is keeping up to date with, with the evolving data is, is to see what comes next. I, I looked forward what comes next in terms of our, the evolution of the criteria for lung cancer screening, the use of biomarkers, and, and certainly being more on the um, investigation side to see how we could really work on um, optimizing the investigation and minimizing invasive procedures um, in our patients with uh, benign nodules. I think that's a really important part um, of the process. So, so I, I look forward to uh, what comes next. Yeah, for, for me, uh, the thing that I'm most uh, uh, interested in, and mo mo I think it's going to be the most important single challenge in screening is getting people to come back adherence. If we look at a multiple different trials and, and looking at the first million screens, only 22% come back. Um, and that's national and screening trial, 95% adherence. In the Nelson trial, 95 or a little less than 95% adherence. There's been one study, a modeling study that showed if your adherence drops 
to 46%. That's double what we're seeing now in the community. Um, you lose about the 50% of the efficacy. Remember, if you, if, you, if you have a screening and it's a one and done, you screen and you don't find cancer, you still have to do that follow-up and come back to find those cancers. So uh, to me, that's the big challenge. And I want everyone to reiterate that to their patients. This is not a one and done. You need to come back for your follow-up exam next year. Yeah, I, I think I'd ask everyone to take away, you know, we had two parts to the guideline and one is who should you screen and you can debate things, you can look at the evidence and, you know, we came up with the best we, we could. Uh, but I don't know that any of that matters if you don't look closely at the other half of it. And it's how do you implement high quality screening so that you're providing benefit to as many as possible and minimizing the harms. Any of you who are procedureless, and if you've ever had a complication and it was for naught, it was a benign naught. I mean, you, you, you just—it's hard to get over sometimes, right? We just have to do this well, and then criteria can loosen. We can get more evidence, so on. So I would just ask that you, you know, closely look at not just who you should screen, but how you should do it uh, in order to keep this moving forward. Amazing take-home points. Thank you so much. And again, on behalf of CHEST, thank you for joining us this afternoon. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.